الصلاة والسلام على رسوله الكريم وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنتي إلى يوم الدين. Our praise due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be in the last Prophet Muhammad and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. Uh, before going into the last section on Hajj, we will uh, just make a brief summary of what the Imam was talking about in the Khutbah of Jummah. Uh, today, Imam Abdurrahman is talking about uh, the, we could say, the trials of the eyes. We talked about that, you know, earlier. The idea that the Salah is training for the individual to control the various parts of his body. And that parts of his body. And that these parts of the body, you know, will testify for or against him on the day of judgment. And the eyes were required during Salah to look at one particular spot. We shouldn't be looking around all over the place. And this was training, so we said that, so that when a person comes out of Salah, one, that person who comes out of Salah is in control of his eyes. He's not just looking all over the place, looking, you know, maybe into places he shouldn't be looking, etc. And of course, you know, for us, especially us as males, one of the big, you know, fitness or trials of the eyes is looking at women. And this was, you know, probably the main point one of the main points that the Imam was talking about in the khutbah the trials of looking at women and this looking at women doesn't necessarily mean uh, the women who are walking around the society it could be for example the magazines almost every store that you go into they have a rack of magazines there and on the, the cover of the magazines you know is a beautiful woman and it may, it may not say as in the case of in Philippines or in America where they will have maybe the whole body of the woman there in these pictures the woman will be just her face and she's when she's covered mostly she may be covered but still you know they have chosen a woman who is particularly beautiful for the purpose of attracting the eyes of those who you know would come near the magazine so that they will buy this magazine and of course these magazines although on the outside it is written these magazines are supposed to be for women most of the people who buy these magazines who flip through the pages of the magazines are men so we can see that these magazines in themselves they present a fitna. The Prophet Muhammad had said that the eyes commit zina. That is, they commit fornication or adultery, depending whether you are you know, married or whether you are not. But the eyes will commit fornication. And their fornication is staring at that which is haram for them to stare at. And he said the private parts will confirm the fornication or deny it. And I'm sure you understand what he means when he says the private parts will confirm it or deny it. That if there is some reaction, then this is telling you you're involved in zina. Right? Because the Prophet also said that the first look, as he told Ali ibn Abi Talib, he told him that he should not follow one look with another look. That is in, in the sense that if somebody, you know, you're walking in the street or you're working on your job or whatever and a woman comes into your presence and you see her, you can't help but see her. The point is that at the point that you have seen her, then you should look away. 
you should not follow up after seeing her you continue to stare at her because you know constantly looking at women what this does is of course it creates you know desires in the individual <coughs> it creates desires in the individual which he may not and likely is not able to fulfill so all he's doing is building up frustration within himself he's building up more and more frustration within himself and of course you know as psychologists have shown that you know these types of, of, of uh, frustrations that a person b- builds within himself it will come out in different ways it will come out in his actions in his dealings with other people <coughs> right? it will affect him because anytime you have this kind of frustration and that it's not just that it stays inside of you and it doesn't come back out no it will come out in other forms of action so the Muslim you know is advised that he should avoid staring you know at women avoid these magazines if you turn your head you see the magazine then don't go looking through all the magazines and looking at all the women and seeing how beautiful they are I mean even without opening the pages just looking at the covers you should avoid it it's not saying that you have to walk around everywhere with your eyes staring on the ground but that if uh, a beautiful face crosses your vision you know without your intention you should not continue it you should not follow it up and build up you know the desires within yourself this is of course you know the as I said the main point that the Imam is developing in the khutbah and it's a lesson that you know we should all take heed to and try to put into practice you know in our daily life <coughs> the, he also mentioned another uh, hadith or statement of the Prophet Muhammad in which he had said that you know if one looks and does see somebody and that person you know has created a desire inside himself he should go to his wife because his wife has what that person has so if a person I mean of course some of you are, don't have your wives here with you or you're not married then for you I mean you just have to be even that much more careful and the Prophet ﷺ had said you know if you can't get married you should fast uh, the alternative is not masturbation you know some people take the alternative as being masturbation that is you know causing yourself to, to uh, ejaculate by playing with your, yourself I mean this is not an alternative it's not an Islamic alternative. Prophet has said, you know, oh young men, those amongst you who are able to get married should get married. Whoever has the means to get married, get married. And those who are not able should fast. This is the Islamic alternative, fasting. Fasting cools down the, the desires because of what, the Islam, what is involved in the Islamic fast. Islamic fast requires one to control one's you know, thoughts, one's actions, etc and also the fact that you know you're denying the body you know certain you know foods etc this helps to decrease the desires in the individual so this is the Islamic alternative and as I said not masturbation because masturbation does not solve the problem it only increases the problem and the person develops that as a habit that becomes his habit so for those who are married if one sees somebody who attracts him in this fashion as the Prophet says we should just you know go home and be with our wives because ultimately when you take away all you know the looks and everything else it comes down to one basic thing which your wife has that the person has so it's to help remove this from the individuals who are married okay so from there inshallah we now you know go on to the last section of our uh, series on Hajj
And uh, prior to this, we looked over the uh, practices of Umrah and the basic pillars that were involved in the Umrah, what should be done, what should be avoided, etc. And now we are going on into the Hajj itself. And we're starting from the eighth day of Dhul Hijjah because the Hajj itself officially begins on the eighth day of Dhul Hijjah. And on the eighth day, the person who was intended to make Hajj should go to Mina. But those who are just making Hajj by themselves, that, that which is called, we said, Hajj Ifrad, or that's Hajj by itself, not involving any Umrah. The person on that day, he puts on his Ihram. If he was in Mecca, he came into Mecca. He, he, if he was inside Mecca, he had come from a num- uh, long time before, or he was a resident of Mecca, he puts on his Ihram at that point and he goes to uh, Mina. If he was coming from the outside, what he does is, of course, he puts on the Ihram when he crosses the Miqat, and when he comes into Mecca itself, he does what they call Tawaf Qudum, the arrival Tawaf. He goes and makes the circuit, seven circuits around the Kaaba, right? Without going and making the, the Sa'i or the walking between Safa and Marwa. He just makes the seven circuits around the Kaaba. And uh, from there, I mean, if he came a day before or whatever, uh, he would do the rest of his Salah, and on the eighth day, he would now head out to Mina. Those who are making Hajj Qiran, we said that those who brought along with them the animal that they were going to slaughter, they, were, they had already, after they made the Umrah, they kept on their Ihram. They're not allowed to take their Ihram off. No matter how long before they made the Umrah, they have to keep on the Ihram. And at that point, they just head out to Mina with the animal. For those who are making what we said was Hajj Tamaktur, where we combine the Hajj and the Umrah without bringing the animal that we're going to sacrifice with us, then we said after they had made their Umrah, after they had made their Umrah, they took off their Ihram, right? And they returned back to a normal state, doing anything they were doing prior to the Ihram, which was halal for them to do. So now after the, when the eighth day uh, of the Hijjah comes, they now put the Ihram back on again with the intention for making Hajj and they go to Mina. Mina is just outside of Mecca and there they spend the night. They go there from, you know, anytime the eighth day starts actually in the Islamic calendar, the night begins on the day before. I don't know if you've realized it or not, but like today is uh, what day of uh, Shawwal? Anybody know what's today? Twelfth? The twelfth of Shawwal. Okay, the night of the twelfth was yesterday night after Mother. According to the lunar calendar, the night begins on the day before. You understand? From yesterday at Maghrib, the twelfth began. And it ends today at Maghrib. Okay? Yes. Tonight would be, after Maghrib would begin the thirteenth of Shawal. Okay? This is how the... So, the person from the, the night or during the day, he heads out to Mina. And he spends the... The night, 
which would become like the night of the of the ninth there. He spends that in Mina, and the morning of the ninth he will set out for Arafah. Now, because of the fact that the Prophet Muhammad had said that Hajj is Arafah, Al Hajj Arafah, people have taken that as an excuse for not going to Mina. But really, this is, you know, distorting the intent of the Prophet Muhammad and the intent of Allah in the pillar of Hajj. The Hajj should be made complete as long as we're able to make it complete. But if for some reason we're not able to get there on the 8th to make it to Mina, and we had to go straight to Arafah, it is possible to complete our Hajj by making it to Arafah. But it is not something that we intend. We, in, we intentionally avoid going to Mina because we know that Hajj is Arafah. This is no good. Really. It is it's against the spirit. You know what it, is, what it is similar to, you may see this in some of the matches, among the children especially during Taraweeh. What they will do, young kids and that, they will sit talking in the back of the masjid until the Imam says Allah Akbar and goes into Rukwa. Then they will come running up and join Rukwa. It's true. The Prophet had said that whoever, you know, catches the Rukwa, the bowing, he has caught that Raka. Right? This is the principle. But this does not mean that you should now sit back you know, taking your drink and talking with your friends until they come to the court and then you go running and catching the court. No, this is no good. This is no good because this is intentional now because the Prophet had also said, La salata liman lam kitab. That there is no salah. The salah is not acceptable for one who doesn't read the Fatiha. That is one who is able to read the Fatiha and chooses not to read it, he has no salah. So those kids who are sitting back there and running there to the salah to catch the court, this, in fact, they have no salah. It's not acceptable. See, this is where it becomes very important that we understand the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Because if you just go by the letter alone, you can change the intent of the religious practices. You can make them into what they're not. The spirit has to be there. The spirit has to be understood. Otherwise, the actions become just blind rituals, meaningless rituals, which we're doing like a physical exercise, with really no, no reward, no, no desire to please Allah, no reward involved in this at all. It's just like training a monkey to go through the actions of Haji goes through. You think Allah is going to reward him, he's gone through the physical actions. No. Or like Kafirs who came here, you know, with the desire to, to see Mecca, to see the Kaaba, because of course they knew that it was forbidden for non-Muslims to go in there. So some non-Muslims, they had this adventurous, you know, desire to come to see what they call the holiest of the holies, right? So they would pretend, you know, like uh, Philby, would pretend to be Muslims. You know, another one, his name is... Um, uh, his name, uh, Burton, Richard Burton, Sir Richard Burton is another individual who, uh, not the actor now, but another one by the name of Sir Richard Burton from some time back. Huh? No, no, no. So Richard Burton, he 
pretended to be Muslim so that he could come in to make Hajj. So he went through and did all the actions of Hajj so he could come in and see what the Kaaba looked like and then he came out and drew pictures and you know, like this. Those actions that he did, of course, there's no reward for it. Although he has gone through all of the actions of Hajj, as a Muslim would, there is no reward for it for him because the belief wasn't there. His intention was something else. Similarly, the one who goes to make Hajj because, for example, he wants to add them, you know, like the gunfighter in the West, in the, as, how the, as how the Americans tell it in the movies anyway, you know, after he killed uh, somebody who put a notch on the, uh, the handle of his gun or the airplane pilots when they shot down, you know, one of the enemy aircraft, they put a little marker on the side of his aircraft to indicate how many he had killed, right? This was uh, a source of pride. Similarly, you'll find Muslims who will tell you, you know, I've made 30 hajjits. I've made 10 hajjits. How many have you made? One are oh, you poor fellow. I mean, he's, he doesn't know or he's not conscious that the Prophet Muhammad only made one hajj. He only made one hajj. One umrah, one hajj. That's it. Right? But for him, it is, you know, he can make as many as he... Why? So that he can tell his friends, you know, I've made Hajj every year. I've made Hajj 30 times. It is a source of pride. Those Hajjs that he is making, you think that Allah is rewarding him for these Hajjs? With this intention. His intention is to have something which would make him uh, superior to his comrades or the people around him. You think Allah will reward him for his Hajj with that intention? This is why, as the Prophet said, إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالِ بِالنِّيَةِ Deeds will be judged by their intentions. This is what it comes down to. He said, important that the spirit has to be there, otherwise the letter becomes a meaningless ritual. So, as we said, although Mina, if a person is unable to make it to Mina and goes straight to Arafah, his Hajj will still be complete. But if one is able, he should go to Mina and spend the night in Mina. On the morning, oh, I should say also that whilst he's in Mina, he joins and shortens his Salah. We talked about that before in Salah. Uh, the Zuhur and Asr, Maghrib and Isha prayers are joined together and they're shortened in the case of Zuhur, Asr and Isha. Of course, Maghrib, which is three rak'ah, three units of prayer, you can't shorten it. stays the same. But for Zuhur and Asr, you shorten them down to two units of prayer each and you pray them one immediately after the other with one adhan and two iqamas. So now, on the morning of the ninth, the Muslim in Ihram, he sets out to Arafah. And he should spend, he tries to get in, the, the, the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad was to go in uh, just after Zuhur, right? Shortly after sunrise, he sets off for Arafah. He prays Fajr, in other words, in Mina. And he sets off for Arafah. And if he can get in there earlier now, because transportation will get us there earlier, no harm. But it was the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad to go in just after Zuhur. And Zuhur is prayed there just after Zuhur comes in, meaning the time for Zuhur comes in. I don't mean after Salat of Zuhur. He would pray Zuhur and after there in the plain of Arafah. You will find a lot of people when they come into Arafah, they will go straight for a little mount that's there with a pillar on the top, which is called 
the Mount of Mercy, Jabal Rahmah, and they will climb up to different levels of it, making prayer there. And you can buy pictures. You know, they have of Hajj and Mecca, so they will show pictures of these people all over this mountain making prayer. But actually, this is not a right. This is not a right of Hajj. Although, as I said, you will find people crowded there, fighting to get up on this mountain, to pray on this mountain, the Mount of Mercy. The Prophet Muhammad did not do it. And it was not from the Sunnah to do it. And he said, You should take the rights of Hajj from me. You do it according to how I do it. But this has become a popular myth amongst Muslims and they climb up, fight to climb up on this mountain and spend all this time on this mountain you know, praying on this mountain whereas the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad was to be in the plain of Arafah and to pray there now, after sunrise or sunset, sorry, in um, the plain of Arafah you set out for Muzdalifah this is on the way coming back now to Mina but whilst we're in Arafah, we should spend as much of our time in prayer, asking Allah's forgiveness, reading Quran, various acts of worship, either doing, you know, extra prayers, whatever, Salah, you know, Sunnah, Salah, whatever. Uh, we should try to engage all of this time in some form of worship, reflection on our lives, you know, asking Allah for forgiveness for various things, you know, that uh, we need forgiveness for in our lives, etc. Ask Allah for guidance, etc. You shouldn't spend the time, see a lot of times when you go there, people just spend the time talking about worldly things. I mean things which have really no connection to the rights of Hajj and what we are there for. You know? We should try during the course of, of uh, the Hajj or Umrah or any act of worship that we are doing, we should try to make our mind concentrated on Allah and on, and on seeking His pleasure asking his forgiveness, asking his guidance. I mean, this should be, you know, the, the essence of our worship. So, we prayed Zuhr and Asr there in Arafat. We prayed them together. At sunset, normally you would expect to pray your Maghrib immediately after sunset. But here what happens is that you delay the prayer of, prayer of Maghrib until you reach uh, Muzdalifah where you pray the Maghrib and the Isha together Maghrib in the three rak'ah three units and Isha shortened to two now Muzdalifah is a relatively small area so people tend to be quite crowded there and you will probably end up sleeping out in the open what has happened is again because the basic, the minimum requirement for one who is unable to spend period of time in Muzdalifah is to make the prayer there, at least to have stood there and made the prayer. So if you were forced for some reason to just stand there, make the prayer and carry on, well then, you know, it would be accepted as having fulfilled the requirements of Muzdalifah. But, if you are able, you should not only pray there, but you spend the night there. But what has happened again, because people are taking the minimum, what the uh, companies that deal with carrying people through Hajj will do, is they will drive them, they may even drive them straight through Muzdalifah, they just 
you know, looking at Muslims and keep on and drive them on to Mina. Or they just stop enough time for them to pray, get them back on the buses and carry them on to Mina. Again, we have to be very careful that we don't get in a situation where, you know, these companies or whatever is just going to rush us through Hajj and we don't get the full benefit of the Hajj. When we get to Muzdalifah, as I said, we should get down, make the Maghrib and the Isha there, and spend the night sleeping. Here, you don't necessarily have to stay up all night. Some people stay up all night, but the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam slept. You know, spend part of the night praying, sleep until Fajr, get up and pray Fajr there in Muzdalifah. One other practice you will find people doing there in Muzdalifah is that they'll be gathering stones. You'll see them going around looking for stones. They'll gather a big bag of stones carrying uh, approximately um, how many stones? No, no. They'll, they'll gather up 42 stones, right? Which is for two days of stoning in Mina. They gather up 42 stones. And if they're going to stay for three, they'll gather up 63. The point is that the Prophet Muhammad did not gather any stones in Muzalif. He didn't go around and what you'll see people doing, they'll take the stones, wash them and everything, put them in a special bag and, you know. Pretty shape, like a pebble. Oh, breaking the rocks. No, this was not the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad at all. He prayed Fajr in Muzdalifah and set out for Mina. And when he came into the region of Mina, he sent the young Sahabi who was with him to go pick up some pebbles for him. So, picking up the pebbles in Mina is sufficient. And you pick up enough to do the stoning for that day. It's not picking up again a big bag of stones that you're going to carry around, lug around with you through the rest of the, you know, the day until you finish your stone. No, you pick up seven, you go and stone. Uh, the next day you pick up seven more and you stone like this. And this is the Sunnah. You have to be very careful, as I said, you know, in the process of Umrah and in the process of Hajj, people have innovated and started many practices which have nothing to do with the practice of the Prophet Muhammad in the performance of Umrah and Hajj. The Prophet Muhammad did allow uh, the women and children to leave Arafah at midnight. Sorry, uh, leave Muzdalifah at midnight. Because of the crush of the crowd there when the stoning is taking place, he allowed them to leave early to go into Mina and uh, do the stoning, which is the throwing of the pebbles at three different points, which are known as the Jamarat. Okay? And people call them the Shaitans, but they are not Shaitans, right? It's the Jamarat. They are called Jamarat. So it is allowable for those who are weak, physically, they are not able to take the crush of the crowd, or women and children to go ahead and do the stoning early. Now, when we get into Mina after Fajr, we perform after say, no, right. After we get in, we go to the, the largest Jamra known as Jamra al Aqaba. And sorry, I said uh, it is the actual number of stones that you throw, it will be seven for each Jamra. Right? So, huh? it's 21. 21. But you can pick up 7, throw it to the first. If you find another 7 and throw it like this, it's fine. Or you can pick up the 21 and go to each. 
all that each, right? Um, you say Allahu Akbar with each pebble that is thrown. And of course, you know, some people you might see throwing all seven at one time. Of course, it's not allowed. You throw one at a time. And the pebbles should be small. Because of course some people are taking some big pebbles, throwing them, and you know of course they miss the jammer on somebody on the other side is getting hit in the head, and so on. of course this is, you know, this is, you have to be very careful in the process that we don't, in, in our enthusiasm to practice the rites of Hajj, we don't hurt others, right? So we should, some people are waiting, they're way back away from the jammer and they're throwing. The stones are not reaching the jammer, hitting the people ahead of them. You have to be very careful to make sure that you, in trying to practice your rites, you don't hurt others. You know, you have sincere intention to practice the rites of Hajj, you make sure you do it properly. Get up, work your way to the front, then throw your stone. You know, one at a time, Allahu Akbar each time. And you may see also some people climbing on top of the jamra with their shoes beating the jamra. They have this idea in their mind that this is shaitan. You know, and they'll be getting sticks and, you know, whatever. They're, they're, they're in their mind, Umbrella. umbrellas, whatever. They're, in their mind, the jamra somehow is shaitan. And they're there trying to, you know, give it the work. So you'll find people throwing shoes even at the, the jamra. But again, all this is, you know, ignorance. Ignorance. And this falls back also on the Muslim communities where these people are coming from because it's very important that the communities inform the people on what is the right of Hajj, what is required of them before they go. It's also responsibility, as we said in the beginning when we were talking about it, when a person is intending to make Hajj, it's his personal responsibility to find out all that is required of him before going to make Hajj. Because if he doesn't know what he's doing, he shouldn't go. Because he's liable to go there and do what he's not supposed to be doing. He's just get into a frenzy and do what everybody else is doing. That which may be bid'ah, maybe against Islam, maybe harming other people, and you know, Hajj becomes like a sin against him, rather than a blessing for him. Now after throwing the stones, we said we started at the largest jamra, and this is before Zohar, you stone the first, then the uh, middle, then the smallest. After that, the person goes to perform what is known as zaba, that is sacrificing the animal. He sacrifices the sheep or goat. This is if he's making hajj tamatwa, right? Or he's making hajj tiran, where he's taking the animal, he sacrifices it. now, of course, the situation is um, such that you, you know, you get tickets and so on. So it is better for you to slaughter the animal yourself. If it's not possible, or for example, you get sick at the sight of blood or whatever, you know, it's possible to give the money to somebody else or to an agency for them to slaughter it for you. But it's better for you to slaughter the animal yourself. And after slaughtering the animal, you should eat some of the meat. It should be cooked up, and you should eat from it also, and then give the rest away and charity to the poor people of Mecca. Of course, you may have a difficult time finding poor people of Mecca now, and um, it is allowable that the, the meat or the skins, whatever, be given to the company that handles the slaughter of the animals, and they can it and send it to, now it's being sent frozen, some of the animals sent frozen or canned, to uh, various parts of the Muslim world where people are in need of food. Now, some people have asked, you know, well, what really is the significance of the stoning? You know, what is the uh, meaning behind it? There has been some explanations given, but 
these explanations are not based on authentic hadith that Prophet Abraham on, the w- on his way to sacrifice his son Ismail Satan had come to him at different points and tried to dissuade him from uh, making the sacrifice and at this point he had thrown pebbles and you know to, for Satan to go away really telling him to go away now this is not really hasn't been authenticated by statements of the prophet so we can't really say that this is this is a fact it is a story which has been handed down along with the truth of it as far as we know this is a rite of Hajj we are throwing the pebbles saying Allahu Akbar each time and you know asking Allah's refuge from Satan it's not really for us to go to find an explanation where no explanation has been given if we find something for ourselves which uh, makes us feel better about the right fine but to go and tell others as to this is why we do it we have to be very careful because then we can start <coughs> a false uh, idea which can carry on and we will be held accountable on Yom Qiyamah for everyone who has heard that idea believed it and passed it because the Prophet had said whoever whoever you know starts a good practice that is a practice which is in accordance to Islam he will get the reward for everybody who does that practice or who benefits from that practice for example he builds a masjid everybody who prays in that masjid until Yawm Al-Qiyamah he will get a reward for everybody who prays everybody who takes benefit he builds an Islamic school or he writes a book or whatever he does some good deed this is one of the few things that a person can benefit from after his death he's done a good deed and this good deed has repercussion which carries on he gets the reward that everybody else gets from that act without decreasing their reward at all but if he starts a bad practice like for example he smokes cigarettes and his children smoke cigarettes following his practice and their children and their children and their children we talked about last time how showing you carefully you know with in detail why cigarette smoking is haram so he started a haram sunnah haram practice in his family every his child and his children's children and the grandchildren who carry out everybody who commits that haram it comes back on him Yom Qiyamah without knowing it he thinks he's only done a little haram but on Yom Qiyamah you will find his scale of deeds you know overburdened with this uh, haram which is carried on because he started that path and he will hold the sin of everyone who carries it so we have to be very careful for what we do you know that if we are in error we do any error that this error is not passed on to others if we realize we've made an error we have to catch those other people and tell them listen this is an error please don't do it if you do it after this it's on you it's not on me very important if you for example in learning about Islam you heard a story you know which was a false story right and you went and told somebody then you find out afterwards it's not true you have your duty to go back and tell that person it's not true it's a mistake so you are not part of the process of carrying something on that's why I said if you come to some kind of reasoning in your own mind better for you to keep it to yourself 
right? Rather than passing it on. Otherwise you end up passing on falsehood and you have to carry the weight of it on Yom al In terms of the Zabah, the slaughtering, this is clearly in commemoration of Prophet Abraham's uh, command, the command which is given to him by Allah to slaughter his son. We, this is commemorating this the slaughter. Uh, an animal was given to slaughter in the place of his son because this was a test of his uh, faith. For us as Muslims, this is also a test of our faith, our willingness to sacrifice some of the things of this life, of this dunya. This is the material, uh, the, the, the slaughter of the animal represents a part of our material um, wealth. We are now taking the money which is involved in buying the animal, we are slaughtering the animal for a loss. So this is representative of our willingness to sacrifice some of the things that Allah has given us for His pleasure. We should also note, of course, that Allah has pointed out in the Qur'an that the flesh and blood of animals does not reach Allah. But what reaches Him is the spirit of your piety. It's an important point. That the, it is the intention behind the slaughter of will, being willing to sacrifice part of the dunya for Allah. This is what Allah accepts. It is not the blood and the flesh of the animal. We eat from the animal and we give away the rest of Salafah as a good deed which inshallah Allah will accept and reward us for. There are conditions of course for the animal you know uh, this is in the notes that you'll be getting uh, we don't need to really go into it now but the point is that the animal should not be in any way damaged or uh, in poor shape you know with what, in other words when we're going to give something for Allah we give the death we don't take from that which is, I mean this is beyond the basic principle, you know. When you're going to give sadaqah, for example, you don't take your own, your old worn out shoes, your clothes that are tattered that, you know, you no longer are able to wear, not because uh, they're too small for you, but because they're so broken up, this is what you give in charity. No. You've got to give, if you're going to give in charity, you give from the things that you love. This is the ones, these are the ones which have the greatest reward. When you give from the things that you love. Of course, if you have some things which you've grown out of, you know, it's, you're, it's, you're too big for it now, whatever, you, you know, it's too small for you, and it's in good shape, you give this also. But you should, it's very important that when you give, for a lot of pleasure, you give things that are of value. Huh? Similarly, when you're going to choose an animal, you don't find, of course, you can find they'll be selling some animals that are real young, real small, real cheap. But these are not acceptable. For animals, you know, the teeth have all fallen out, they got diseased eyes and all that kind of stuff. You get them cheap. You see people there, they, it's haram, they shouldn't be selling it. The people who are involved, is haram on them, too. Because they shouldn't be selling these animals. Because they're causing some people's ads to be incomplete or to be damaged, to be harmed. And similarly, you should not be looking to try to find, of course, it's when you're trying to buy the animals, you're trying to find, you know, a low and a reasonable price. But not to the point where you're getting an animal which is diseased or damaged in any way. The animal should be healthy, you know, grown, etc. After uh, making the sacrifice, then we do what is known as the hulk or qatr. We either shave the head off or we clip our hair. And it's preferable to shave the hair. Dr. Sallam 
you know, had asked the Lord's mercy for those who shaved their hair. And he repeated that three times. Uh, somebody was asking him, well, what about those who cut their hair, just thin their hair? He repeated his, ble- you know, asked the Lord's blessing for the one who shaved their hair. And the man kept asking. After the third time, then he said, okay, uh, well, I bless those who cut their hair. It's indicating that the, sh- the shaving of the hair is much more highly recommended. And for those of us who have great attachment to the hair, then it becomes even a greater uh, act for the person. Because, you know, for those of us who spend a lot of time in front of the mirror, you know, making sure the hair goes this way, and, you know, so when they go to make Omar Hajj, they only want to clip a little bit because they don't want their style and so on. So this is a test for them, especially. For those of us, it doesn't really matter. Of course, it's no big test, but so a lot of reward is with shaving the hair. You know? And it, it, involved in there, you see, is some humility. Because people feel proud about their hair. By removing that hair, this is also some humility, taking you back to really how when you were born, when you came, you know, as you were created, you were created well here. Of course, some people are born with hair on the head, right? You know? But initially, the initial stage when they're being formed in the womb, it's without hair. The hair is something which comes later. And it's really of no consequence. When you die, does it matter whether your hair was long and nice and curly or however? It doesn't matter. These things really are of no consequence. So, we should not, we should try our best not to get involved and tied up in that. If we find, for example, that we're spending 15 minutes in the morning, you know, combing our hair, then we know something is wrong here. You know, for the Muslim, he should not be caught up in this kind of thing. You know, it's better to trim your hair down to a point where in the morning you just do something quickly and you're going, you don't waste time in these kind of things. You shouldn't be wasting time on vanity. So after, uh, making a sacrifice, we shave our hair or clip it, and at this time also it would be good to clip the fingernails and, you know, toenails, shave the hair under the armpits and around the private parts, and stop it then, also. For those who do not um, go on Hajj, they are told at home, those of us say, for example, we have to go on Hajj. They are encouraged to make a sacrifice in this place. To make a sacrifice on the day. That's on the tenth day of the Hajjah. Right? On the tenth day, we make a sacrifice. But if we're not able to make the sacrifice, you know, because of lack of money or the animal that we have, we need, for example, for the milk for our family, whatever. You know, those of you back in the Philippines, when the 10th day of the Hijjah comes, which is the Eid, right, you should make the sacrifice if you can. If you can't, instead, you clip your hair, shave it or clip it, and your fingernails, toenails, trim your mustaches, and shave your pubic hair, hair around your private parts, and your underarm. This is what you do in, in place of it. In terms of the fasting that we mentioned, we mentioned fasting before, you know, we had certain days which were not allowed to fast. It should be known that fasting, you know, should not be done on the 9th of Arafah, you know, the, on the day of Arafah, or on the 10th, right? But during the 11th, 12th, and 13th, especially for those, those who are on Hajj, those who are on Hajj, 
who are not able to make the sacrifice, although they made the intention for the Hajj along with the Umrah, but they don't have the money to make the sacrifice, the animals are too expensive, then instead they fast. After we completed the, um, the shaving and clipping, we can go again to Mecca to perform the major tawaf of Hajj, which is known as tawaf al-Ifadah. We go to, to, to Mecca then and we perform the seven circuits. It could be on the uh, tenth, right, because remember we spent the ninth day in Arafah, and we spent the night in Muzdalifah, so it's the tenth now that we started our stoning on, right? So on this day we can also go to uh, Mecca or we can go at night. It doesn't necessarily have to be during the day. It depends on your ability. But if you're able, after you finish slaughtering and cutting your hair, you're able to go, you should go there. If you're too weak, for example, the struggles that have been involved, you know, you're, you need time to rest, you can go rest, sleep, pray, sleep, and then when you regain your strength, you can go ahead to perform the tawaf. And after completing the tawaf, you pray the two units of prayer behind the place of Abraham, Maqam Ibrahim. And at this point, after completing that, we go between Safa and Marwa. So it's almost like what we're doing here, we're doing like a little Umrah in the middle of the Hajj. But what it is really is that, you know, Hajj has in it the rites that we do for Umrah. Umrah is like a shortened version of Hajj, you know, outside of the Hajj time. So the time when we come here, we make the tawaf, we pray behind Maqam Ibrahim, and we go and make the sa'i, or the walking between Safa and Marwa. This is now called the sa'i of Hajj itself. When we are completed, if we did it, say, for example, in the night, we go back to Mina, and we complete spending the night in Mina, and the next day, which is the 11th, we stone, but on the 11th we stone after Duhur. We wait until after Zohar and then we go to make the stoning of the three Jamarat. We, uh, we spend the night again in Mina of the, this was actually the night of the 12th, but on the day of the 11th. And we repeat the rites on the 12th, stoning after Zohar. At this point, we can return to Mecca, make Tawaf, what they call Tawaf, um, al-wida' or the farewell tawaf and leave or we can spend the 13th day also in Mina Allah has given this as an option in the Quran itself for those who wish to go back early they are allowed to do to go back after completing the 12th and those who would like to stay on they can stay on and do it on the 13th but the point is whether you finish on the 12th or the 13th before leaving Mecca, the last thing you should do before leaving Mecca is to make the Tawaf and Wudah. We should make the final seven circuits, you know, as farewell and leave Mecca. So that completes the, um, the basic rites. As I said, the notes have, you know, more details as well as it, it has in it the description of the Prophet Hajj itself. Inshallah, you can, you know, go over that, get a better picture for yourself. Uh, if you have any questions, after reading it over next week, you know, we can uh, look at that also. But for now, inshallah, we'll stop here. 
And if anybody has any questions on what we've covered or any questions on what you've read during the week, please uh, ask the questions now. You mentioned that the third is not you could shave the hair before. The hair could be done before the slaughtering. Not before the stoning. But no. What what we have done after after the stoning we shave our hair. Yeah. And then I went to slaughter. Yeah. You can do it that way. Whether you shave the head before the slaughter or after the slaughter, it's the same. No problem. Because the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, people came to him and asked him about it and he said, no problem, no worry about it. But not before the stoning. Not, not, not before the stoning. Well, of course, when you go to sleep, you should be careful not to take the uh, cover and cover your head because you know when you're in the state of Islam you're not supposed to cover your head right of course some people have gone to extremes on that you'll see some buses these big uh, American um, buses the bluebird buses kind of they built from the state they have pilgrims who their buses have no top right I don't know if you've seen them people will drive and they'll just say why why did you want why did they take the top because the idea that you're not supposed to cover their head they feel that this is included so they will drive in buses that don't have a top. No, this is extreme. Right? What it's talking about is you physically covering your hair by putting on a cap or putting the top of your haram over your head and whatever. This is what you're not allowed to do. Of course, if while you're sleeping, you've gone to sleep, you wake up in the morning and you found this thing over you, right? Again, this is no, there's no sin on you. You remove it, you know, there's no, there's no sin on you because in the state of sleep, uh, if you do anything, you're not held to account for it. Right? There's a prophetic tradition that says, Yeah, yes. Uh, we mentioned this already. We mentioned this already. This is the Hajj, uh, this is one of the rewards of Hajj. He was just reminding us of this hadith that the Prophet had said, Whoever goes and makes Hajj without you know, doing any sinful acts, or speaking in any sinful fashion, then he returns, if he's done all the rites completely, he returns like the day on which he was born. That is free from sin, like the day on which he was born. But we say that this Hajj, which is what they call Hajj Mabrur, the Hajj which has been accepted by Allah, you know, and the Prophet said that the only reward for the Hajj Mabrur is Jannah. But the person who makes that kind of hajj will get tired of it. It's guaranteed. That is sahih, authentic hadith. So this is something worth striving for. But that there are signs. There are signs which let us know to what degree our hajj was accepted. One of the major signs we said was that the individual, his life changes. He doesn't come back from hajj doing the same things he was doing before Hajj or Umrah. If he returns to doing the same thing he was doing before Hajj or Umrah, this is one of the signs to let him know that his Hajj was not accepted. Because that accepted Hajj is one in which one has, has done the Hajj purely from his heart, sincerely. 
And if one has sincerely asked Allah's forgiveness all the way through the Hajj, etc., this must have an effect on it, on his action. He's not going to come back, and as soon as he comes back, he's back to doing all the things, forbidden things that he was doing before Hajj. All this is letting us know. This is why the same thing, for example, with Salah. Allah tells gives us a criterion to let us know what Salah is acceptable to him. What Salah is the Salah which is desired. When he said that, in the Salah, tanha anil al munkar. That Salah prevents fahsha, which is, you know, evil speech, cursing, talking about filthy things. Well, munkar, and evil deeds, you know, watching dirty movies, touching women who not, should not be touching, you know, all kinds of evil deeds. Salah, Allah says, stop that. That's what Salah is supposed to do. So if we find that we're making Salah, but yet we continue to speak truth and do evil actions, then this is letting us know that this Salah that we're performing is just a empty ritual. <coughs> you know, it's not sincere, it's not from our hearts. Also during Hajj, it says that one should not push his head, or one should not touch 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 his head, or one Move, uh, uh, your finger like this. Yeah, but you see, this may not fulfill what you need. If you got an itch here, you rubbing your hand like this, it's not going to fulfill it. It's just going to be there bothering you. So what is better? Is it better for you to scratch and remove it than for you to be rubbing it, you have to go make saliva, this is there, you're still rubbing your hand. No, you scratch and remove it. If a hair falls, this is not on you. Same thing they will say, okay, when you take your bath, when you're on Hajj, uh, you know, you shouldn't wash your hair because whilst washing your hair, some hair may fall. No, no. no these are extremes. Oh, you shouldn't comb your hair because when you comb your hair, no, no, these are extremes. These are extremes. Islam doesn't require you to go to those extremes. The point is that you should not deliberately pull hair out of your head or from your body. Nor should you put your fingernails. We mentioned this already amongst the things. These are the what they call the forbidden things when one is in a state of ihram. What kind of part I did? You know, this is the second. On the seventh of Zulhijjah, uh, we built our ihram in the middle of the Thais, and then we proceeded to Makkah, make the Tawaf, and then the Thais, and then we did some part of the hair only, the three parts here. Then we keep continuing the ihram. And then the uh, eighth of Zulhijjah, uh, we went to Mina, and it stayed there. And then the following day, we went to Arafat. Well, you see, this is a position which is held by a number of the scholars that the this what you've done is what they call Hajj Qur'an. But really, according to the Sunnah of the Prophet, that form of Hajj was only for those who brought the animals with them. Yeah, we didn't bring the animals with us, we brought the animals there. We 
they slow the race, we get some part and we leave the other part. Well, as I said, you know, this is a position which is held by some of the scholars, by a number of the scholars, they hold this. This is Quran. Yes, they call this Hajj Quran. But Hajj and Umrah combined without taking off the Ihram. But, you see, there really, there is no need to do that. Because you could have taken off the Ihram after the Umrah, and your Hajj would be, you know, complete without any questions. I mean, there was no necessity for you to have kept on the Ihram, you know, there is no necessity to perform that form of, of Hajj when you've got the other one, Tamatta, which is the one which the Prophet recommended. Right. He is told, if you read the Hadith which describes the Hajj of the Prophet what he did was he told his companions, those of you who did not bring the animal with you, after you make the Umrah, take off your Ihram. And he said that if I had known before what I know now, I would have done the same. But he brought the animal with him. So once he had brought the animal with him, then that means he was making Quran. But the one which he recommended, which was favorite, which is the best, obviously the one in the sense of fact that he was recommended and telling everybody to do it, is the Tamatwa. For one who is going to do Umrah along with Hajj. So I, I don't have any omission that... Uh... Not really. Not really, because as I said, this is, this is a position taken, and you did it, you know, based on the information which was given to you. And as I said, uh, it would have been preferable if you had taken the animal with you, and even more preferable, because most of us are not able to take animals with us, preferable to just do Samatra. Do the Umrah first, come out of the Haram, and then do the Hajj. Yeah, but this, uh, also the one thing is, after we made the Umrah, we just played three years. One year, three, three, maybe here, yeah, one year, and then here. Yes, this is, again, as we said, we talked about that before, this clipping, you know, this has become acceptable today, you know, because of the fact that this can be described literally according to the language as clipping, but what the intent was clipping the hair as opposed to shaving is completely clipping your hair off, you know, like having a complete haircut, either that or shaving, and again, uh, in the case where you are doing it before um, the Hajj, then it's better not to shave because you will have some hair to shave after uh, performing the uh, stoning. But it would have been better, and you know, it's just for you now if you teach other people or you're helping right. other people that you let them know that they should clip the hair off. You know, clipping it. I did not comb my hair for the last four days. They said that you must not. From your hair, once we make a body sahib, it's a mitad. No, no holding of the hair. I let the hair dry like that. Until we finish the sacrifice the first time, that's your hair. I think it's very hard. <laughs> okay. Well, you see, part, part of the thing is that, you see, after you made the, uh, the Umrah, when you clipped your hair, you see, if you had clipped it properly, then you would have had no need to comb it. Right. But because of the fact that it wasn't kept properly, then there was need to comb it, and really, there is no harm in combing it. But of course, when you comb it, you comb it gently. You don't just drag, because you know when you pull the comb through, or you get a fine-tooth comb and you pull it through there, hair is coming out. So if you know that this is deliberately going to do it, then you shouldn't do it. But you get a large-tooth comb, you comb it easily, so on.
you have a question? In 11, in the 10, 11, and 12, do you have to go to Makkah then? No. Well, the Mecca only for the Tawaf. Yeah, Tawaf after, after the Tawaf, you go to Makkah, right? Yeah, Tawaf. After that, you don't have to go back to Mecca until you finish your time of what they call Ayam al-Tashriq. Those are the 11th, 12th, and 13th. When you finish that, then you can go back. And you go only to Makkah, then you go to Yes, in the middle, yes, on the 10th. If you went back to Mecca, you know, after stoning, for example, on the 11th and the 12th, you went in and then came back, it's no harm. No harm, but it's not really the practice. And what the practice of the Prophet Muhammad was, was to spend that time in Mecca. But what is the, the minimum requirement is to spend the night in Mecca. That's the minimum requirement. Any other questions? Yeah, we last Wednesday we in a special time discussed the creation of Adam and the disobedience of Iblis in Bowie. And we specified that Iblis is among the angels. It's an angel. He said that Iblis was an angel? Yeah. Are you sure he said he was an angel or he said he was among the angels? Among the There's a difference between the two, right? Because Iblis was a jinn, but he was among the angels. Allah had, uh, had raised his station, given him a position, a lofty position, because of certain uh, knowledge and abilities that he had over the rest of the jinn. And that had given him the right to be among the angels. So he was among them in their group. This is why Allah said... Yeah, he was telling that uh, Allah has commanded the angel mm-hmm. to bow down, mm-hmm. but uh, Iblis did not. Yes, this is in Quran. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then uh, he's telling that the angels are created just to obey God, mm-hmm. to be obedient to God. Yeah. And uh, he was also telling that Iblis did not, uh, did not reject God, but reject the, the bowing God. Mm-hmm. Sort of like that. So it's confusing. So you are telling before that Iblis is that jinn or what? Yeah, Iblis was a jinn. You know, a jinn has a choice between believing or not believing. Iblis was, when in refusing to obey God, he became a bad jinn. Up until that point, he was not a bad jinn. He was not a he was not an angel. It says right in the Quran, Can Amin al Jinn. The Quran says specifically that he was a jinn. And Iblis, actually, in his explanation, he even says, when Allah asked him, Why didn't you bow to Adam? He said, Because he was made, you made him of clay, and you made me of fire. And we know the angels are made from light. Prophet said that. The angels are made from light, and the jinn are made from smokeless fire. So fire. Not fire as we know, you light a match, fire, say the jinn is made from fire, no. But a elemental fire, it could be, you know, Allah knows, nuclear fire or whatever, you know. But a fire which is smokeless, it's not the fire that we know in regular life. Some people may ask, well, how could they go to the hellfire, the bad jinns did? If they're from fire and you're going to, how is Allah going to punch them with the hellfire? Well, the point is that it's not a problem because you know, you're made from clay, right? But I can take a piece of clay that's been hardened 
and smash you and kill you with it. Can't I? So the fact that you were made from clay doesn't mean you can't be harmed by clay. That just means that's what your origin was. Your origin was clay. But are you a piece of clay walking around now? No. And that's your origin. Similarly, the jinn's origin was fire, but it doesn't mean that they're just fiery balls that's flying around fire. No. Right? This is a mistaken concept. Huh? But the, the Iblis was, among, was a jinn who was given certain uh, uh, powers and, and certain uh, abilities which Allah uh, made him higher and greater than the rest of the jinn. Just like among the angels, certain angels are given greater powers than the other angels. Like Jibreel, like Gabriel, was given more powers and more responsibility than the others. Similarly, Iblis was given greater responsibility, etc., among the jinn. And he was allowed to be among the angels. So he was with the angels when the command was given. إِذْ قَالَ رَبُّكَ لِلْمَلَائِكَةِ اسْجُدُوا لِآدَمِ فَسَجَدُوا إِلَّا إِبْلِيسِ Allah said, call to the, to the angels, among them was Iblis, bow to Adam. And they all did except for Iblis. This is the... And this, you know, in terms of Islamic context, this is looked at as the original sin. If there is an original sin in Islam, it is the pride of Iblis. Because that's what led him to not bow to Adam. So if... Huh? So if, you know, in talking with people, they talk about the original sin, it's important to clarify that for, uh, for non-Muslims, Christians, etc. The idea that when we talk about, in Christianity, original sin in Islam, we have no original sin in the sense that you have a sin which is inherited generation after generation. We have no sin like that. But original meaning the first, yes, we have. The first sin, that was that of Iblis, when he refused to bow to Adam. And his refusal was based on pride. This is why the Prophet had said that anyone who has a mustard seed's worth of pride will not enter paradise. You see, pride over out of race or out of country or any of these, ty- these types of pride where you feel you're superior to others, this destroys your iman. Because as Allah says in the Quran, Inna akramakum indallahi atqaqum. That the one who is most noble in Allah's sight is the one who fears Allah the most. That is the basis. Okay, is that clear? The idea of. Uh, because he was pointing out that Iblis did not actually reject that object, but he's only rejecting about Adam to be the victim. Well, I mean, well, you see, I, I don't want to get you know too philosophical on it, right? The, the, it's co- it's clear because the, again, you're telling me what you heard, and I can only judge what you're saying. I cannot judge what Jalaluddin said because I didn't hear it. You know, you might have heard something, or you thought you heard something. And you're relating to me, and so and so, right? But I'm just saying, based on what you're saying, I would say that Allah. Uh, Allah commanded Iblis to bow to Adam and he refused to bow to Adam. So his refusal to bow to Adam was a disobedience to Allah's command to bow. That's clear. 
Now the reason why he bowed was not because he didn't believe in Allah. But this is the point. I mean, he believed in Allah more than you and I do in the sense that he was conscious of Allah. He knew that Allah existed. But the point is that his disobedience was based on pride. His arrogance. You know, this pride can cause somebody to go beyond what he knows to be true. And when he does that, then he enters into disbelief. Because you have, for example, the case of uh, uh, Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet He knew that the Prophet was a prophet. He knew because he raised him, he knew the type of person he was, and he had confidence in him that he really was a prophet. But yet, when he was dying, when the Prophet came to him and said, you know, uh, accept Allah, there is no God but Allah, you know, and I will intercede for you with Allah on the Day of Judgment. He wanted to say it, but his other relatives, his cousins, his brothers, came to him and said, listen, are you going to give up the belief of your forefathers, you know? Are you saying that they are on the wrong path? Or are you going to stick to the belief of, of your forefathers? Right? And so, out of his pride, pride in his tribe and his forefathers, he stayed in a state of disbelief and died in that state. And the Prophet said that he is an empire. I mean, he is not on the same level of the hellfire, say, you know, some people who have done uh, major evils, but still, he's in hellfire. He said the place that he is, in hellfire, on the upper level, uh, is such that the fire gets his feet, only his feet. But in getting only his feet, it causes his brains to boil. But that's his state, forever. Uh, not a masjid, a, a house. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of Rira now, Rira is different from pride. So Rira means. Um, what do you want to call it? Um, a desire to protect something which is yours. You see, because you should have rira relative to your religion. It's like pride, but pride as we normally know it we refer to it, we look at it in a negative sense, because this is how pride is usually used. Right? So if you want to say, you can put it this way, that it is the positive side of pride. Mm. Yes. Not allowed, but required. You should have pride in your religion. Proud to be a Muslim. You should be proud to be a Muslim. You see, this pride is different from the other one we talk when people usually use the term pride. You see, 
this means now where you feel you are better than others because of something which is intrinsic in you that is because you are you or your people are your people or whatever you feel you are better than others that's the pride which is despicable which is a sin but the pride for Islam this is the sense that you are proud to be a Muslim proud in the sense that you know when people are standing up and talking about their religion you don't quiet you don't want to say anything because you know you're shy and this is not good Islamically you should be proud to stand up and say I'm a Muslim and Muslims believe in this and so on so on so you should you know have confidence this is pride, pride in the sense of having confidence feeling the worth of right not wishing that thing that is in your possession to be destroyed or used you may have this feeling it means it's supposed to like to honor honor Yeah, do you understand? Any other questions? Okay, inshallah. I have questions concerning the society of the moon. Sakhar Shankar in the Philippines, he has not yet, he has not seen the moon because of flood. Then later on, we heard that the other countries in the Philippines have seen the moon. Can we find it? Can we pass tomorrow or okay? Okay, this is a problem which, you know, can arise uh, under a number of different circumstances. You have two principles. One, either you follow the principle where the Prophet said that whenever the moon is sighted, you fast. Whenever it's sighted again, you break the fast. In other words, whenever and wherever it's sighted, in the world, in the time now where we have communications where we can find out what's happening in Mecca immediately the same day you can follow that principle and fast according to that or you can fast according to the sighting in your locality there are two principles so you people wherever you are have to decide which principle you're going to follow the thing what you don't want to do is have some people doing one some people doing the other so you should decide you know either um, in your area you have different islands or some countries which are close by that you are in constant contact with you should then set up a network where on the 29th of Shaban when you are expecting the sighting of the moon if you haven't sighted it you call the other countries or you know the countries that you are arranged amongst yourself that whenever it is sighted you will contact each other one will call or whatever so if nobody calls I know you call and they said they haven't sighted it, it wasn't sighted in your area, we assume that it's the 29th of Shaban and tomorrow is also the 30th of Shaban, we go ahead according to that, right? You can either follow that principle or you go according to the sighting in your area. You're in the Philippines, you go according to the sighting in the Philippines. Follow? But you have to decide one or the other. Because if you go according to the sighting in the Philippines and then uh, if you hear that uh, somebody outside, then you gotta have to, you're going to count it that it wasn't seen, that, that, that um, sorry, that you should have seen it, but you didn't. And then it's going to mess up. It's going to become, it's going to be a mess. Right? You have to decide one way or another. Both are valid. Hmm? So the community decides which way they're going to follow it. It's good. For you, if you have a community, you decide in one way, and you all go according to it. It's just like, for example, there's certain points on the earth where the distance to Mecca is the same whether you go from the east or from the west. 
So which way do you make the Qibla? The people in that area have to decide which way they're going to do it and do it. But just you decide as a group and you all do it. So you don't have one master across one street facing this way, another one facing the other way. And you have that. It's happened. It has happened. Especially in, uh, in South America where you have a lot of people who are brought there from Indonesia. And in Indonesia, people faced to the west. Right? As you all in Philippines faced. They faced to the west. Now they were carried as workers by the Dutch. They brought them to Suriname, South America. So, some of them said, because we faced the west in home, they continued their culture. And they made their masters facing the west. Others said, well, no. We're now much closer to the east. So we should be facing the east. So they turned facing the east. Actually, those who are facing the east are the correct ones. Because, you know, anywhere on the earth, you can either go east or west. So the principle is that Whichever distance is closest to the uh, Kaaba, that's the direction you should face. Right? I mean, there's some people who are going to face south. Right? When you're in Medina, you're facing south. But you could also face north. Because you're on a, a globe. So if you face north, it will go around and come back and get there also, right? But the point is that you face the nearest distance. But when you reach a point where you're equidistant, then you should uh, agree. The people of the area should agree on one direction and they all follow. And as we said before, what's required of you in terms of facing the Qibla is the general direction. We don't have to have the exact compass, you know, direction, so on and so If you're making a, a masjid, and you have a compass and you can make some calculation, fine. But you don't need to go around to the other masters that were built 50 years ago and say, well, look here now, you're off by 3 degrees. Right? You must now change your master to conform with our master. No. We don't need to do this. Because 50 years from now, somebody else will come with a more accurate compass than yours and say, well, look, you're off 0.002 degrees. Now you must change. No. This is not a requirement. Because, as we said before, when you're talking about thousands and thousands of miles, here in Riyadh, if we are off from the Qibla by point zero 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 one degree with Mr. Kaaba by a mile. Because over the distance, that small fraction that you're off here becomes a huge distance. So we're not required to face the Kaaba exactly because we're not capable of calculating it exactly. So what we are required to do is to face the, the general direction of the Kaaba. And the only time you're required to face the Kaaba exactly is when you're there in Mecca, you see the Kaaba, you must now face it exactly. You're not allowed to pray in any other direction. You must pray exactly the Kaaba. Otherwise, as the Prophet ﷺ said to his companions, who were in Medina, he said, ma bainal mashriqi wal maghribi qibla jannah. What is between the east and the west is a qibla for you, is the direction. That means 180 degrees, in other words, south, right? From east to west, by 180 degrees south, as long as you're praying in that direction, you're facing qibla. This is the general principle. See, all the time, when you look at the different principles and practices, if you see something that is creating confusion amongst Muslims, you must try to find out what is the root of this thing. To find out where the flexibility lies because there is certain, you know, acceptable and allowable differences which any community must recognize, otherwise it will be at war with itself. You must know those areas so that there can be flexibility and people can work together. 
and the areas where there is no flexibility, then you must know those and be able to clarify for the people that the other one is wrong. Because some people may be praying only to Allah, some people may be praying to some saints, some people may be praying to Prophet Muhammad These are different ways. Right? And when you ask the person who's praying to Prophet Muhammad he says, I'm praying to Allah through Prophet Muhammad When you ask the person who's praying to the saints, he says, I'm praying to the saints who will pray to, to Prophet Muhammad who will pray to Allah for me. So in the end, everybody is worshipping Allah. Or so they think. But the only acceptable way, Islamically, is to pray directly to Allah. So you have to know the difference that these other ways are not acceptable. And clarify for these people. Okay? Okay, subhanakallahu wa bihamdika. Ashadu wa la ilaha 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 